The sermon text this morning will be 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the servant went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, 
she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I'm sure you've heard the expression that the bigger they are, the harder that they fall. Or even analogous to that is the old English rhyme, a Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. The, the idea is that the greater you are, the more powerful you have, the stronger you stand, the more accomplishments you perform, that when you fall, it is a great fall. And I think the tragic consequences of David's fall uh, are seen uh, in these bigger you are, the harder you fall. You know, when you think of David, outside of an Adam and Eve and their sin, this is probably the most remembered issue of David, his sin, his fall. I mean, it, he's also remembered by a great victory over Goliath, but he's, but he's really remembered for this great fall. And I, I want you to be thankful with me in this respect the Bible doesn't gloss over their heroes. You know, much literature in the ancient Near East would, would kind of gloss over those things that reflected poorly on somebody that they respected, that over time they began to immortalize. It would kind of remove those things that didn't shine nicely on their hero. Not so the Bible. You can trust the words of Scripture. It speaks the truth about the nature of its people. So when we look at this great fall of David, uh, there's three things I want, I want you to consider. Three things. First is that successfulness can lead us to vulnerability. And we're going to see this as we look at li David's life leading up to it, that successfulness really does, it can put us into a position of great vulnerability. Uh, but then secondly, that, that when you look at the fall, you see the absolute uh, progressive and destructive nature of sin. That we may call it different names and look at it in, in kind of a brighter light, but it's very, very progressive and destructive. And then thirdly, that in spite of the sin, God's faithfulness is going to be greater than our sin. That, that God's faithfulness will prove to be the saving act, even though the fall was so great. So we'll look at those three things. Now let me just, in terms of successfulness leads one to vulnerability, let me just give you a quick sweep of David's history, where we've been up to this point in the series. You know that it started out in chapter 2 in 1 Samuel when, when Hannah, Samuel's mother, if you remember, she prayed that a king would come and he'd be a great king. That's what she prayed for. Now, now, remember this, that she comes out of the period of the Judges. You know, the book of Judges is right before the book of 1 Samuel. And the book of Judges is really just a litany of moral and spiritual and political chaos. You know, it's known by that phrase, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was a disaster of a people. Uh, it, it ends with, and there was no king. In other words, they needed a king. And so she prayed for it. And of course, we saw that Saul, the first king, just burned down. But now David's on the scene. And, and what hope the nation must have had. I mean, think about it. David, in 1 Samuel 16, it starts out so sweet. He's this young, innocent man. 
right? And he's, but he's got a confidence in God. He says, in trust, he put to death the bear and the lion. You know, you think about this young man like a rising star in Israel. His dad ignores him, his brothers ignore him, but God sees him and God calls him to be king. And then God begins to use David. He becomes a mighty warrior. Remember, it says of, it says of Saul, he, he defeated thousands. But of David, he defeated tens of thousands. So you see David begin to be just, just the hero of the people. And then, of course, we saw last week how David was, was given this promise by God. He wanted to build God a house. God said, I'm going to build you a house. And in your house, you're going to have a son, and your son's going to have an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne. So, and he was sitting there before the Lord in worship. You think about David and giving this promise of God that from him would come one to save. And then, of course, if you were to keep reading in, in 2 Samuel, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, David continues. He doesn't build the house for God, but he does extend the kingdom for God. And chapters 8 and chapters 9, about all these military victories. He goes to the southwest and defeats the Philistine. He goes to the southeast and he defeats Moab and Edom. He goes to the north. He, he defeats Zoba and Syria. It says in chapter 8 that everywhere David went, God gave victory. Can you imagine? I, I, I mean, he is probably 50 at this point, 50 years old. He's been reigning for probably 20 years. And to have no defeats, to go into every battle you win. I mean, the economy is strong. The national defense is strong. The city's being rebuilt. David is a palace. I mean, can't you imagine? He's at the zenith of his power. He's at the zenith of his popularity. I mean, he is at the top of the game. He's their hero. Let me just stop there for a minute before we fall into chapter 11. Uh, successful leaders, godly leaders, they're a good thing for us. I, I know some of you here perhaps have not had uh, an experience with good leadership, perhaps in your home, perhaps in the church, perhaps even in this church. Uh, it, it grieves us. We as a leadership team seek to do well. But I think it's self-evident that good leadership is beneficial for all. And a good leadership is marked by a leadership that knows its authority is derivative. It's delegated. It isn't inherent in us. That it is an authority that's been given, and it's an authority that we will be accountable for. That's the mark of good leadership. If you don't understand that, you won't have good leaders. But good leadership is also concerned about the well-being of the people. That good leadership is, is exercised for the benefit of other people and not for ourselves. In fact, at the very end of 2 Samuel, David writes these words. He says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You can just hear with good leadership, we're benefited. We as a church need to pray for that. We need to pray for good leadership. We need to pray for good leadership in our homes. We need to pray for good leadership in our country. We need to pray for good leadership in this church. We want to ask God, God, help us to have good leaders. As leaders go, so usually people follow. And so God, give us, do you pray that? Do you pray for your leadership? Do you pray that they would understand their authority is derivative 
and not their own? Do you, do, you, do you thank God for the leadership? I mean, do you ever give a word to those who are leading in the home, in the workplace, in the church? Do you give thanks? And if you are a leader, are you a good leader? Do you see that your authority is given to you by God? Do you realize that you will be accountable? Each leader, whether in the home or in the office, different positions that God has sovereignly put you, that you will be responsible. It's a stewardship you have. And, and so it's something that you have to speak to God over. But good leadership often, and strong, and successful, and effective leadership often makes us very vulnerable. That, that prosperity and success oftentimes leave us very, very open to failure. I mean, I think most of you know, if you've been in the faith for a while, that adversity usually is a time of great growth, and prosperity is oftentimes leads us to idleness, degrees of complacency. I, I think you know when things are going in your direction, you, you get a promotion, and then another promotion, or maybe you get the respect of people, or you, the accolades start coming, or people start talking about you, they respect you, they begin to honor you more. You know, th th those are the things that actually make us susceptible. We begin to forget that we're dependent upon God, uh, th that this confidence begins to well up, and our dependency on God begins to decrease. Now, kind of on a, humoring note, a humorous note, you often see this in, in children. You'll see this in children. When, um, when Rachel was learning to drive, she's my second daughter, I asked her if I could share this. Uh, when she was learning to drive, uh, Carol was the first one to go with her, and she came back, and I think her words were something like, that was a harrowing experience, I cannot do that anymore. She goes, you will have to teach her how to drive. And so, because Rachel was quite confident and her skill set was not equivalent to her confidence. And so I remember having a few situations and, and Carol actually was catatonic for about a day after that experience. But um, I remember sitting in the car with her and she goes, she was excited to drive. And so I said, great. I'm sitting in the car, driver, passenger, she's in the driver's seat. We're in the garage, so the nose of the car is pointing to the door of the house and the laundry room right after that. And so we have to back out of the garage, and in our family, we double-check that the, the garage door is open when you back out. That's just something that we have in our family. And uh, so the door is up, and she confidently says, you ready to go, Dad? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to roll. I said, great. And so she drops it into gear, and like she's been driving for 30 years, puts her arm around the, the seat, looks back like we're going to go plowing out of there, leaving rubber on the, on the ground. And uh, she goes, you ready? I said, nope. And, and she goes, well, why aren't you ready? And I said, well, why don't you just look toward the steering wheel? And she looked down. And I said, what do you see there? What's that letter right there? She goes, it's a D. I said, well, D doesn't mean R. D means going that way. She goes, well, Dad, I wouldn't have done that. I said, we would have had the washing machine on the front of the car if in your confidence we were about to look this way and go that way. That's not the way to drive. But y you know how confidence, particularly in, in what you see it in kids, but it's within ourselves, that as confidence and success increase, so our dependency goes down. You see this in our world. You see this in the celebrity world. After a few good movies, you see this in the athletic world. After a few good seasons, they become a law to themselves. They don't need to be checked anymore. They are deciding what they want to do. And, and this, is, this is the susceptibility to success. 
And this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The proverb says the same thing, pride goes before the fall. Or in chapter 27, he says that the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by the praises of the people. There is something that moves in us, that moves us to a position of great, great vulnerability. Have you thanked God for those times of weakness? Have you thanked God for those times when you have been put on your back? It's hard to be arrogant when you're hanging by a thread. Have you thanked him for that? And when you have success, have you turned to God and thanked him for that and given him, what do we have that we haven't received? See, I think this is kind of the precursor to what leads to chapter 11. That all the way from 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 10, David is a shining star. But then 11 comes. And then the fall comes. And this is where he sees the progression and the destructive nature of sin. Look at the first verse in 11. It's supposed to alert us to something is amiss. You know, it says, in the springtime, when kings were supposed to go out to war. The implication is, now listen, war is not always logical. I admit that. Uh, but the timing of war is often logical. In the springtime, you don't go out. In the wintertime, you don't go out to war. Why? Because the rains are heavy. The ground is soggy, and the food is scarce to feed the army. But in the spring, the crops are producing food, the ground dries up, much more effective if you want to wage war to do it in the springtime. But David doesn't go. He stays in Jerusalem. The writer wants us to know he remained, everybody went but him. So so there's something the writer is wanting us to see. Now, kings aren't required every time to go to war. Chapter 10, he hadn't gone to war. But there's something unique about this. It's kind of showing us with this idea of him being on the couch is that instead of being in battle, he's in bed. He's taking a nap. He's getting off the couch in the late afternoon. The question is, what are you doing, David? He's complacent. He's disengaged. He almost seems disinterested. He's just walking on the roof. Now, this idea of the patio, the bedroom was next to a patio, which would go out to a roof, would often be cooler. But in the Hebrew, the context is kind of he's walking back and forth, like he's killing time. Now you say, well, can't he just relax a little bit? Sure he can, but, but when he's drawn with, when he's compared to Uriah, when Uriah comes back, he's in a wartime mentality. I mean, he's not sleeping with his wife. He's not going home to receive the comforts. The men are in the field, he's going to be with the servants. He's not going to, you know, kind of bring the comforts of life while everybody else is suffering. And yet David just seems to be quite complacent, lackadaisical. In fact, there's kind of a hint there. It says when he's on the roof, The only other time that they're on the roof in Scripture is when Nebuchadnezzar was on the roof. And he kind of looked around over all his kingdom, and he is just reveling in all that his hands had done. And you just feel this pride welling up in Nebuchadnezzar, and you kind of see that in David. The success has gone to his head. So this is the complacency that that leads David to this deep and dark sin. But then notice what happens next in David's scene. He looks over the wall and he sees it's not a beautiful woman, it's not an attractive woman, it's a very beautiful woman. Now, the word for beautiful is the word for good. The same word used in Genesis 3 when Eve saw that the fruit was good. 
And it was delight to the eyes. And it was desirous to have. See what the writer's doing. He's saying, David, now the spokesman for God, the king, is walking into the same trap as Adam. The same one. It's incredible. It was a delight to the eyes. He sees her, it says. He saw her. Now, that would indicate that she probably lives near the king's palace, which means probably she was a woman of wealth or some position. You don't get to live right near a king unless you have some position in society. And he sees her and she's bathing. Now, why is she bathing? Well, it's to cleanse her from her monthly cycle. But it's not just telling us that little detail for that reason, but to let us know she wasn't pregnant before she went with David. She was not pregnant, so the baby that she would have is clearly David's. There's no confusion about that. There's no, well, we're not sure about it. It's very clear it would be David's child. Now, when David sees her, and by the way, to stumble upon that and see a naked woman who's very beautiful and you're kind of drawn, that's not necessarily a sin. I mean, that's just a response. What happened, it was the second to third, the sustained look. You know, and we see the sustained look because he inquires of her. The only other time David inquires in the book of Samuel is he's inquiring of God on how he can do God's bidding by defeating the enemy. But now he's inquiring for his own self-centered purposes. And he hears that she's Bathsheba. She's a daughter and a wife. Now, what's interesting, in most lineages in the Bible, uh, husbands are never mentioned. It's always the father. The servant wants David to know that she is a daughter, but he wants, and I would say he warns David, she's a married woman. It's one thing, David had already accumulated a bit of a harem. So, so for a king to take another woman into the harem was wrong, but, but the servant wants him to know this is of a different order. She's a married woman. And by the way, she's married to one of your commanders, one of the mighty men of Israel, recorded in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. He's a mighty man of Israel. But you know what? When you're steaming in lust, you become blind, you become deaf, and you become dumb. And I don't mean that in the sense of becoming mute. And so he says he sent for her, he took her, and he laid with her. It's given in somewhat coldish fashion. After sex, she got up, she left, and went home. Done deal. One night stand, no big deal. Nobody knows. Nobody's hurt. The implication of the text is that uh, she may have been consensual with this. She might have been overwhelmed by his power. I, I would argue probably that, that she was open to it. Now, she's bathing in the daylight. Now, generally, you don't do that. You bathe at night if you're going to bathe. And, and if you're going to bathe in, out, or I should say, if you're going to bathe outside, you tend to check around and are there windows? Are there ledges? Am I being exposed to other people? doesn't seem to be the case. It's left open. It leaves us wondering about it. Well, of course, his whole house of cards came down quite quick when the only recorded words of Bathsheba is, I'm pregnant. She says, I'm pregnant. Well, this is when David moves. He was complacent. Then he's kind of arrogant. Now he's just kind of deceitful. Goes into plan A. I'm going to bring Uriah back. And I'm going to bring him back and give him some R&R that he would sleep with his wife and, of course, think the pregnancy was his own. Of course, Uriah doesn't do that. He stays with the servants. He won't go down and enjoy. And there was a bit of... But, 
some feel that it was not just, it's a soldier's responsibility that when his fellow soldier's in the field, he's not enjoying the comforts of home. But I think there's more than that. I think Uriah's devotion is being held up in contrast to David's deviousness, that he's more concerned about the ark than David is. And so that plan didn't work. He didn't go home. David got, the plan ended, or the plan failed. But then what does he do? Of course, he then brings him back for another night of partying, and he gets him hammered, thinking, well, if I just get him sloshed, then his devotion to God is going to take a nosedive, and he'll just stumble home and be with his wife. Of course, his devotion was not muted. So then David has to shift the plan C. It's getting desperate now. And so he, of course, sends Uriah with a note to Joab, and Joab puts him in harm's way. It's an effective plan. Uriah dies, as well as other soldiers die, and uh, it worked, right? Uh, end of story. It, it, it's, it's all good now. So he's out of the way, and she's pregnant. And so that's how the story kind of ends. And it, when you, look at, when you look at David, a man after God's own heart, he fell into becoming arrogant, lustful, deceitful, adulterous, a murderer. He misused his military power. He misused his, his role of king. I mean, how far did he fall? How did he fall so far? I mean, what happened? I mean, where's the smoking gun in this thing? Do you ever think that you could not fall that far? What David failed to understand is really the nature of sin. Do you understand the power of sin in our lives? I think what David missed, let me just explain to you a couple points about the nature of sin. What I would argue is what caused the collapse of a man of God. Uh, Number one, that sin, he forgets that Sin thrives in ease and success and comfort. That, 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 that when you are at the top of your game and when you're super successful and things are going all your way, beware. Uh, that is, those are deep waters of temptation. David was 50 years old. He arrived. He was successful. The kingdom was great. He was well-loved. He thought he could do anything. If I want that woman, I'll take that woman. He didn't realize how weak and susceptible he was. He was probably bored with the success. He was probably tired of it. He was complacent, disengaged. He had forgotten the nature of sin, that it's like planting mint. It'll just take over if you leave it long enough. That progressive nature of a little lust doesn't hurt anybody. She doesn't even know. It's no big deal. And yet that's where it ultimately leads to. You know, that's the, particularly about sexual sin. Uh, sexual sin has a capacity. Uh, we're susceptible to sexual sin even due to boredom. You know, we live in this materialistic age. We live in this age where we need new stimulation every day. Uh, because God is not in our world, we need to be stimulated all the time. And, and so sex is that one act of transcendence, that, that moment of sexual intimacy. Gives us, it gets us as close to something outside this simple, formal, material world. I shared this a few weeks ago, not this quote. I wanted to share this quote. Uh, 
back then, but I, I want to now in that sermon on lust in the seven deadly sins. This is by Dorothy Sayers, a British essayist, and she's trying to understand why we so easily succumb uh, to sexual sin. And she said this, there are two main reasons for which people fall into the sin of luxuria or lust. It may be through sheer exuberance of animal spirits. She says, or, and this is commonly happens in periods of disillusionment like our own, when philosophies are bankrupt and life appears without hope, men and women may turn to lust and sheer boredom and discontent, trying to find in it some stimulus which is not provided by the drab discomfort of their mental and physical surroundings. The mournful and medical aspect of 20th century pornography and promiscuity strongly suggests that we have reached one of these periods of spiritual depression where people go to bed because they have nothing else to do. I mean, that, that success, that, that boredom with life, that ultimately leads to, well, that'll provide some stimulus to my life. So I, I think he, he was unsuspecting of boredom and success and ease and comfort. Uh, but then secondly, I, I would say that that he failed to see that sin blinds us to God. It blinds us to God. I mean, notice what he says to Joab. When Joab reports that Uriah the Hittite was killed, he says, well, you know, the sword devours one and the sword devours another. I mean, do you hear the callousness? I, I, I mean, it's kind of like, well, you can't win them all. You know, we lost a few good men. I'm sorry about that. I mean, this is David. Remember, David's the one? That big Goliath, that, that big... Philistine giant, he's not going to mock the God of Israel. And he offers himself in sacrifice to defeat this, to save all the people. And now he's using all the people to save his own hide. I mean, do you see him change? He, he just kind of went in this downward spiral of callousness. It, it, it kind of, that's the nature of sex. You see all the active verbs in, in this text? You know, he, he saw, he sent. He took, he lay, she left. It, it, there's a coldness about sex when it's, in the, when it's outside the covenant of a relationship of commitment. There's a coldness to it. I think about the, um, how it blinds us. You know, we have this solar eclipse coming tomorrow, right? And so uh, it, I think sometime in the afternoon, what I've read at least, because uh, I know you scientists are going to probably, if I get in too much detail, I'll be probably at one point corrected. But let me just give it at a high level, right, non-scientific level. You know, th this, this, this moon, now everybody's really paying attention, aren't you? <laughs> you can bring me down a couple legs, I'm sure. Okay, so when the moon gets in front of the sun, now depending upon where you are, I guess western um, North Carolina is in the path, where when the moon uh, comes between the earth and the sun, it's going to block out the moon uh, in its entirety, uh, or, or something like that. I'm looking at some scientists making sure. But, but here's the point. You know, the sun is this massive ball of power and glory and light, giving life to this planet. And you've got a dead stone in space, it, it worthless, just held by gravitational forces, and, and it's going to block out the sun. And that's what sin does. It, it, it blocks God out. You can't see God. When you're in the heat of lust and pursuing of sin, God is quite unreal. And that's the issue with David. At that point, you can't fight. 
because you've already become toast. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way in his book, Temptation, he says, in our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret, smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire, ambition, vanity, desire for revenge, our love of fame and power, or greed for money. At that moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for a creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan doesn't here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust, thus aroused, envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted me? Yes, is it really expected of me now, here in my particular situation, to appease this desire? That's the nature, that it blinds us to God. You lose reason, become like an animal. And, and then third, another part of sin is that it won't remain hidden. Please, if you think your sin will remain hidden, just read chapter 11. I mean, think about all the people that already knew. I mean, he asked the servant who the woman is. He sent servants to go get her. The servants that she sent to say that she was pregnant, no. Joab knows. Obviously, God knows. I mean, it's ironic. I think you'd agree. It's ironic that the one thing he tried to, that the, the one thing that he tried to hide is the one thing that he's known by. I mean, I mean the, the irony is, is profound. What he tried to hide is what now identifies him. Oh, David the adulterer. You know, it, it, it's, like, it's like a leak. It's like a leaky pipe. It may not scream for attention, but I'll tell you, over time, you'll see it. I mean, it'll come out. And it'll do a lot of damage the longer it's left unattended. And then the last thing I would say is that, that sin is pleasurable. It is. There's no doubt. The passion of illicit sex is overwhelming. But let me tell you, it's really expensive. It's really expensive. You know, Proverbs 9 says, stolen waters are sweet. They are. I mean, the passion is great. But boy, the cost. I mean, just, just catalog some of the costs here. Families are being destroyed. Witnesses are being stained. God is dishonored. The covenant is being threatened. I mean, the Proverbs ask, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? And why do we think that we can carry on about and not, not bring about great devastation? When I was in seminary, I've shared this with you a long time ago, but when I was in seminary, I remember reading about a pastor who would keep a list of all the costs associated with him committing adultery. And uh, I remember the list, and I remember making a, a list for myself, kind of wanting to just burn in my mind what would happen if I committed adultery. So that when I move into temptation, I'm thinking, well, I would devastate Carol. I would bring shame to the children. I would cause them to probably waffle a little in terms of their understanding of the faith. My grandchildren, it would probably be one of those things we just don't talk about. But they'd know. Of course, siblings, parents' honor, the woman, of course, that you commit adultery with, and then her siblings and her parents and her children, the destruction that is brought in that. And then you, the church, we pray that we never bring shame to this church. But, but the, the hill that you would have to climb, 
after a moral failure within the pastorate? It would be significant. A and, then, and then becoming a laughingstock for those that already don't want to believe, now you've just given them all kinds of reason why not to believe in this gospel. I mean, that has helped me. I mean, to think through, what are the costs? Okay, if I'm going to have this momentary pleasure, what are the costs going to be? Now, you don't invest your pension this way, of course. If you know the costs are that great, eh, short-term pleasure, long-term costs, you don't invest that way. So when you look at David here, a man of his caliber and falls, who are we? that we might not want to take stock of where we are, that we might not want to put right weight on the sins that we have kind of made accommodation to. You know, th this is one thing I, I, I want you to understand as a church. You know, we, we often have a false view of sanctification. We think that, you know, we're battling sin before we're Christians. When we become a Christian, uh, then all of a sudden, now, now I'm in open water now. I'm good to go. I, I, I've walked through the gate, and now I can let my guard down, and I can just keep living. And sanctification is now I'm, I'm saved. I, I, I asked Christ in my heart, and I'm now saved. And we forget that the, the battle continues as long as we're in this flesh. We kind of look at it like when I was, <clears throat> when I was growing up on the, on the water, we learned how to sail early. And, and learning how to sail, you know, when you're in a big sailboat, it has a keel. <clears throat> and the keel is that, that part of the boat that goes under the water, and it's loaded with weight so, so that the boat obviously won't capsize when the winds get strong. It won't roll the boat over. But we learned to sail on these really small boats. They're really fast boats. They didn't have a keel. They just had maybe a centerboard, a daggerboard, maybe. But there was no weight under it. And the reason was is so you want to get the boat going fast. And what happens is the, the boat gets going so fast that it's almost like skimming the surface of the water. It's almost surfing the water. We call it, it's on a plane. Little resistance. And we think that's the way the Christian life is. Not so. Not so. You, you continue to fight sin as Christians. We're engaged in this battle. Alexander White was a Scottish divine. And here's what he said to his church. He says, you'll not, this is his church, he says, you'll not get out of the seventh chapter of Romans while I'm your minister. Now the seventh chapter is Romans of Romans is where Paul says, I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So help me God. This idea of the, of the constant struggle that the Christian has against sin in this life, that we're called to fight it. We're called to fight sin. Identify it and fight it. And fighting it as a church means this. It means that we do it in community. You cannot fight sin alone. If you try to isolate yourself and you know, remove all transparency that nobody really knows you, you are toast. We need to fight it in care groups. You need to fight it in intentional conversations with people. You need to fight it by coming to church on, on Sunday morning. Why? Because this is where you're getting smelling salts to wake you up. You won't read this in the paper. In fact, it says in Hebrews 3, it says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day. That's the temporal modifier there. Every day exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so we fight sin in community. As a church, we need to do this. I need you, you need me, we need one another. Uh, but, but then secondly, we, we fight sin by fleeing temptation. It's easier to flee a temptation than it is to fight a sin. So you want to get out of dodge before it gets to that point. There's nothing wrong with fleeing. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, 
that situation for me is a little too much. I'm going to avoid it. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but, but also, we, we fight sin by, by loving God, by growing in our love for God. I'm not going to sit up here and say, lust less. I'm going to say, love God more. You know, your desires are oftentimes, some, sometimes, out of your control. But the more you love God, the less, the less you will lust that which is not yours. You know, if, if David had found God more attractive than he found Bathsheba, he wouldn't have chased her down and slept with her. I've told you before that the greatest inducement for me to be pure in my marriage is to love my wife. The more I'm devoted and passionate for Carol, all of Carol, the less I'm going to be tempted by another woman. It's the same principle. The more we grow in our love, our affections for God. I mean, our affections have to be cultivated. Please don't just assume spiritual strength. It has to be cultivated. And then last, I would say this, that, that you know, fighting sin comes as you're engaged in ministry. Uh, being lax, being complacent, I'm going to get to it, I'm in a different season of life now. Being engaged in the development of spiritual good in the hearts of other people helps us fight sin. It keeps us in the battle. Uh, the time that you step out of ministry, the time that you, you're just kind of coasting in life is when you're most susceptible. This is a warning for all of us. You know, we sing the song often here, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. It was written by Robert Robinson. He was, a, um, he was converted under George Whitfield's ministry in 1754, and he became a, a Baptist pastor in Cambridge, England. And uh, you know the song, My Heart is Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It. Well, the story goes, or history goes, uh, that he became involved in just frivolous things of life. And... and uh, Later in life, he was riding in a carriage with another woman and others, and she kept humming this song, Come Thou Fount. And she was speaking about how much the, psalm, the song meant to her. And he said these words to her. He says, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many, many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. He had just strayed away slowly. The man that wrote the hymn strayed away from God. Isn't that ironic? I want that to happen to us. I, I don't want you to fear. I want you to prepare. And even if you're not a Christian here, I, I do want to say that sexual sin has cost the freedom of the sexual revolution, has not been good to women, the lives of women or men. You know, sex, when it's unhinged, it's outside the covenant relation, it dehumanizes us. A string of successive one night, it dehumanizes us because there's nothing to it that separates it from a bull and a cow. It, you're beasts of the field. There's no compassion, care, flourishing. In sexual intimacy, it's within a covenant of protection and love and joy. And to separate it from that is to make it something different, and it dehumanizes us. It makes us like animals. Animals mate. So do we, apart from that covenantal relationship with God. That's what it becomes. You're human beings made in the image of God. There's a great cost in all of the, the successive stands or enjoyments of bodies. There's more at play with the soul. Can't separate the two. Okay, well, look with me. So we've looked at the precursor to the fall, and then we've looked at this issue of, um, of the fall. Quickly, though, look at 26 and 27. I, I don't want to just 
run to help. I'm going to run to a little bit of help, uh, but I'm waiting for chapter 12 next week. Look at how the story ends. He dies, she mourns, she moves in, they get married, and she has a child. It seems as if he just got off scot-free. It seems like everything went fine. I mean, here he is, the king of Israel, the great man of David, the, the one who wrote the Psalms, the man who was wise beyond words. He was a, a, a valiant warrior. And where is he now? He's fallen. He's no hero. He's no great shepherd. He's broken the law. He's, he's transgressed God's people. He's abused the covenant. And he just gets married. It, it, it seems like he got off scot-free. You know, there's been no moral statement given through this whole scene until this last line. The thing that he did displeased God. Oh, it displeased God. What does it show us? I don't want to run ahead. I want us to stay in the weight of this passage. What it shows us is that David needed a second David. David needed a second and better Adam. David needed to be saved. All along we've been seeing David as a type of Christ, not here. He needs Christ right here. He needs him desperately. He needs a Messiah to come to deliver him. And the beauty of this passage is here. It's not in the sexual sin. It's not simply written for us to see, oh, here's a warning about sexual sin. I think the primary point of this passage is to show us the steadfast love of God. Didn't he say in chapter 7, and when your sins commit iniquity against me, they will not remove my steadfast love from them as I did with Saul. Didn't we sing that song, that last song of the first set? He won't remove his love for us. The covenant continues. Though sin is great, greater still is the grace of God. I don't want to give you a license to sin at all, but I want you to understand the power of God to save, that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. This passage leaves us we understand the nature of sin now, and now we really see we need to be saved. I mean, we need a Savior. We need one to come. David, any human leader will never give to us what Christ can give. I mean, only Jesus Christ can come and deliver. One without iniquity. One that lays down his life. He doesn't take life. He lays it down. Isn't it ironic that the very last line of this chapter is, this thing that David did displeased the Lord. And when Jesus was baptized, what were the words of the Father? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was pl David displeased God. Jesus pleases God. He pleases God because he's perfect in every way. He's obedient to the Father and he's going to lay down. This is the gospel. This is what every one of us needs, not just to overcome sexual sin or any other sin, but to be reconciled to God, to have Christ as our Savior. This is a heavy chapter. I want it to be heavy. Uh, in this day, in this age, many of us have struggled with sexual sin. That we've fallen beyond measures that we could even have thought we have. That we could ever have gone. We've gone there. And for those that haven't, let me remind you, Jesus says, if you've committed less than your heart, you've already committed adultery. So in Jesus' analysis, lust leads to that. If not in body, you've already gone there. We need a Savior like this. All of us do. And particularly for, for men and for women, as it's increasing among women, you see this, just this spate of female teachers with male students. We need a Savior to deliver us. We need one to, to deliver. So let's take a few moments now and just silently, uh, perhaps this is going to be a time that you feel admonished that you have been idle. Perhaps you are weak. Ask God for strength. 
Confess your sins. Use this time to confess sin, to ask for grace, to thank him for his mercy. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.